I've been asked a few different times, why this series? What is heaven really like? I shared a little bit last week, and just to bring everybody up to speed, what motivated this series? Um, I've been around, not just, I'm not just talking COVID stuff, uh, but over the past few years, four years or so, um, family, extended family, friends uh, have been directly affected through health tragedies uh, with death, with sickness, with decay, and it just starts to, you never get away from it, it seems it's, you know, it's just pervasive, and added to my own family, extended family, and dear friends, the reality of sharing lives with you as a church. I mean, the pastor is expected uh, to ex- celebrate every mountaintop uh, and walk through every valley of the shadow of death with his, con- with his congregation. Uh, not in a way that's distant at arm's length, but in a way that um, we're souls touch. Uh, and when that happens year after year after year, you know, this thing called secondary trauma where you live in it with other people, so much so that it just really starts to um, take its own toll. Uh, and so what I found myself doing um, is desiring to protect not just myself, but my family uh, from sickness, decay, and death. Almost believing that that I had some control over it. That I would do whatever possible so it didn't touch too closely. Uh, and, and, and as a result, uh, what happens is that one starts to live or I start to live under a great deal of fear Almost like the adult child of an alcoholic where you're just waiting for the next shoe to drop, right? Like it's good for now, but something's around the corner. And so I realized that that's not a real healthy place to, uh, way to live. It's not a real healthy place to be. Uh, and I realized that I needed to realign my heart and my mind. And, and so this series has nothing to do with you. I wasn't thinking about you all at all. I was thinking about me. Uh, but out of that, I thought, you know, if, 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 if this is my struggle, it's probably someone else's in my church. Um, and so my heart was drawn to things like this, Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So I started to think, if I were to set my heart on the things above where Christ is seated by the hand of God, where is that? It's heaven. I started to realize that perhaps I'm not supposed to just set my heart on Him, but on it as well. My heart started to be drawn back to Colossians 3. I remember in my undergrad work, listening to one of my 
favorite professor is Roger, Dr. Roger Morlane. And we talked through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is an interesting study. And the idea behind this statement, God has also said eternity in the human heart. Like he's placed something in us that says, we recognize the brokenness of this world and there's something in us that's pulling us, that's, that's causing us to desire something better. I, I totally understand it when people say, you know, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. That's this verse. Without being able to acknowledge as God who said eternity in my heart, I feel the pull towards spiritual things. We, we, it's, it's no surprise to any of us that we, we live in a broken world, right? And there's, there, every one of us desires something better than what is. And, and honestly, uh, no, no more so than uh, every April 15th. We realize this is a screwed up world. <laughs> if... if <laughs> If, if nothing else draws us to heaven out of this world, taxes will do it to you. You know, I yearn for something better. And what I realized, for me, and it's probably true for some of you, that we've traded the craving of heaven for the fear of dying. Rather than craving the opportunity to be with God in heaven for eternity, what's most resident at the surface of our lives is the fear of death. And so today, we're going to talk about this. My grandma passed away a few weeks back. She was 97 years old. He's old. I went to her 95th birthday party. And she was still pretty dang spry. Recognized people, talked to people. Year after that, she's in an assisted living place. She got COVID. And out of COVID, she developed pneumonia at 96 years old. And she did great. It was nothing to her. Be tough enough and honorary enough not to be bothered by something like COVID and pneumonia. And then just recently, I think she decided 97 is enough. And it was good. Surrounded by two of her daughters, it was good. And it's easier to talk about death when the life has been long and the life has been blessed. But I will acknowledge the idea of God's providence is tested when the young die. We've all been to funerals where we've had those moments of wondering, if only. Right? If only they'd not gone out that, that night. If only I'd have texted them or called them one more time. If only... If it had gone to the dang doctor sooner, if only. If only. If only. We have to realize that there will always be an if only because things and life have an end. 
And Jesus understood this. In Luke 22, he said, For things concerning me have an end. He didn't say things are coming to an end. He says they have an end. I understand that. Things have, life has, life in this earth has an end. Jesus knew it. The book of Job reminds us about our earthly days have a limit that no one can exceed. The Bible is very clear that no amount of worry, work, or stress will add any length to your day. There is an end point that God has determined. Now, having said that, let me say this. Though you cannot exceed your day, you can shorten it. So a lot of things people do, perhaps, that shortens it. Now, I'm not going to get into that today. That's a much deeper conversation and will require a lot more time than what I have this morning, but we will deal with that at that question and answer night. Jesus addressed the idea of the afterlife quite a bit. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus talked about the afterworld. And, and, and I, need to, I need to reframe what it is we think happens after we die. And I want to reframe it biblically. In the scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, up until the resurrection, the afterworld was spoken of as a place, a real place, but a place consisting of two different compartments. In the, in the New Testament, there's a Greek word, New Testament written in Greek, and the word used for the afterlife is Hades. The afterworld is Hades. The Old Testament was written in Hebrews, in Hebrew, and the Hebrew word for the afterworld is Sheol. Exact same place. They both mean the place of the dead. In Hebrew, Old Testament, it's Sheol, the place of the dead. New Testament Greek, it's Hades, the place of the dead. Same place. When we talk about the afterworld, before the ascension, the resurrection, the ascension, just lived, he died, he resurrected, and then he ascended. Up until that point, this, these are the words that the Bible uses. And in that context, there's two compartments in that place. Jesus talked about this very thing. The book of Luke, he told this story of this rich man and Lazarus. And they both died. And Jesus speaks of the rich man. He says, he went to the place of the dead, and then Lazarus died, and he went to the place of the dead. The rich man went to one place, and Lazarus, the poor man, went to the other place. The rich man went to the place of the dead, to the bad side. Lazarus went to the place of the dead, to the good side. The place of the dead all through Scripture, up until the crucifixion, resurrection, and Ascension had this place of the dead in two compartments, a good side and a bad side. And apparently, according to what Jesus said, there's a chasm between the two that cannot be traversed, but there is awareness of the other. They talk to each other. When you and I think of hell, 
we think of the place of the dead, but when you and I think of hell, it's something very different than Sheol and Hades. The picture that you and I have in our minds of hell, fire, gnashing of teeth, all that stuff, that place is different than Sheol or Hades, even the bad place of those. What we think of a hell is a different word, and it's in Greek called Gehenna. Gehenna isn't a reality yet. It won't become a reality until the consummation of all things. And the Bible says, after the great white throne judgment, God himself will throw the devil and demons, death and Hades into Gehenna. And so biblically speaking, here's the thing. Have any of you heard this stuff before? <laughs> Most of you are like, this is brand new information. Like, where are you getting this stuff? Well, from the Bible. So our problem is we don't usually take time to study hell. Biblically, right? Right? There's a few times where we might be upset we might invite someone to go there. But there aren't many people that study hell. And as a result, we don't have a clear understanding of the afterlife. And so what happens, both of hell and of heaven, we have these misconceptions that are a conglomeration of what Hollywood has told us, of what cults have told us, of what uh, things outside church, of what misinformed church people have said, but it's not what the Bible says. And so what will happen, here's what happens. You start reading the Bible, it's going to screw a bunch of stuff up that you think. So there will come a time when God himself, after the great white throne judgment, will take Hades, death itself, the devil and the demons, and throw them into Gehenna. But up until the resurrection... When the Bible talks about the after, it doesn't talk about that hell. It talks about these places of Hades and Sheol, a good place and a bad place. Now, something happened after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. At no other point in Scripture, after those happened, Jesus resurrects and ascends to heaven. At no other point does the Bible talk about the afterworld in two compartments anymore. It talks about the place of the dead for those who are not gods, who are not children who haven't accepted Christ. But it seems after the ascension, the resurrection ascension, biblically in the Bible, every Christ follower who died went directly to heaven. That's how the, narr- that's how the Bible story changed after the resurrection and ascension. And it seems as what we read in Scripture that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he took all of the good part of Hades with him into heaven, which was paradise, which is why he could say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. No longer the place of the dead in two compartments. But that place, heaven, paradise, is not the eternal home for the Christ follower. We talked about this a little bit last week. If you weren't here, didn't hear that message last week, you need to go back and listen to that. It sets this up. But that place of heaven is not for the Christ followers' eternal home. 
Why? Because God will eventually recreate creation. Revelation 21 and 22 talks about the resurrection and the recreation of created order, where God will make a new earth and will bring heaven to earth. See, right now, we want to get up to heaven. At the recreation of all things, Revelation 21 and 22, God will then dwell with man on earth as he did in the garden. The Bible says there's a very real heaven on a very real earth where very real people will live with a very real God and experience a very real life. This is my whole message on two weeks from today on Easter Sunday. It's going to be all about resurrection. What it is and what it means. Because what it is and what it means is probably a little bit different than what we think because we haven't studied resurrection biblically. You're going to be here for that. But, but the crux of this whole thing is this. Between what is now and the real heaven with a real God, with real people on a real creation, the passageway, we don't get to this from here without going through We don't even want to say it. We don't even want to say the word death. We don't get from where we are to where that is without going through death. Death is this weird thing. And it's very abnormal. Because it was never God's intent originally. And it's abnormal because it tears apart what God created to be joined together. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, God said, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. They ate of it. Did they physically die right then? No. So what did God mean that they would die? It means they would be separated from what was intended to be joined together, themselves and with God. A death would occur. We talk about death in these forms all the time. The death of a dream. Right? When the dream and reality are torn apart. Talk about this all the time. The death of a business. The death of, of relationships. The death of a marriage. And so when we talk about the death as far as the early life, earthly life is concerned, we're talking about a separation. A body without life. The sense that mankind, womankind would live forever Somewhere, that we, the, the sense that humanity would live forever somewhere has, has shaped every civilization that's ever been on the planet. The Australian Aborigines believed that heaven was a distant island beyond the western horizon. The Mexicans, Peruvians, Polynesians, they all believed at some level that life after death was, was either on the moon or on the sun somewhere. Native Americans, some of them believe that the after in the afterlife, their spirits would hunt the spirits of buffalo. Like we've all had, every civilization has this idea that we're meant to live somewhere forever. Christians just haven't understood that very well because we've never studied heaven nor death. In AD 125, a Greek named Aristides wrote this, 
to a friend about Christianity to try to explain why this new religion of Christianity was spreading so fast and was so successful. And this is what they said about Christians. If a righteous man among Christians passes from this world, if they die, the rest of them rejoice and offer thanks to God and escort the body with songs and thanksgiving as if they're setting out from one place to another place nearby. They said, you want to know why Christianity is so successful? Because the way they view death. Because when one of these people die, they're so crazy, they take that body of the one who has died and they celebrate the passing from one place to another as if it's someplace nearby. And they sing songs and they give thanks. They're crazy. Early church father Cyprian said this, let us greet the day assigned to us. That day which snatches us from this place and sets us free from the snare of this world and restores us to paradise and the kingdom. Anyone who has been in a foreign land longs to return to their own native land, and we regard paradise as our native land. So rather than be in fear of that day, let's greet it with joy like we're going home. This sounds so foreign to how we view death today, doesn't it? Doesn't it? So foreign. See, it's because these who have gone before us, our Christian ancestors, read Scripture and believed it. That's why. They read Scripture and believed. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. They read and believed it. Let's do that. They read and believed it. But Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die. That's even better. See, we could say that if we knew we were near death. But at the pinnacle of life and health, to have that mindset... That's otherworldly, right? Okay, look, I know we're talking about death and it's a little uncomfortable. But give me a little something back. Like that's different than how we view death, isn't it? Absolutely it is. Oh, look, look what the Bible says. Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, and would prefer what? To be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What's that mean? Have you read the Bible before? This is like, wait a minute. See, our attitude about a thing is largely dependent on what that thing is compared to. Do you know why we get so frustrated with how things turn out? Because the reality of it is compared to our expectations. And, and how often does the reality of our thing match our expectation? Not Any of you say, I do? 
Not that it's not good. I'm just, it's just different. Not that it's not wonderful and absolutely fantastic. It's just different. Right? Have you bought a new car? Yeah. The expectation is that it's nice. It just, it's just like it's just different. And so death is seen as an end because it's weighed against earth. And it ends. But biblically, for the Christian, death is seen as new life because it's weighed against heaven. So the question is always, what is it weighed against? So the New Testament gives us images of what death is and helps us reframe our understanding of death. When we frame death through the perspective of earth, life ends forever with it, and we fear it. But when we frame death biblically, it robs it of its fear. And so, how to view death biblically? View death as a departure from this place. That's what the Bible says. Just a departure. It's not an end, it's a departure. Because the Bible says, in Luke chapter 9, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So they're talking about his death, but it was they spoke about it in terms as a departure. And, and the idea is death is a departure from one place, and the implication is a promised arrival at another place. So it's not an end. It's a departure from one place with a promised arrival at another. And it's the same word and same idea used of the Exodus where the people of God departed one land and were promised an arrival at a promised land. See what I'm saying? So it starts to reframe it. So our problem is that death has a lot of mystery around it, right? I understand that. But the Bible says, Since the children have flesh and blood, this, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his physical death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So Jesus came and he said, look, I'm going to walk this road and I'm going to walk it for you and I'm going to go through death for you, and I'm going to wake up on the other side for you so I can break this fear of death that has gripped you. Death is a departure from decay into life. That's how the Bible understands it. We ought to view death biblically also as a sailing ship. It's a sailing ship. Here, this is a good verse to, to, to understand what it says. Philippians 1.23. Paul says, I'm torn between the two. Talk about life and death. I'm torn between life and death. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far than being here with all y'all. That's what Paul, I mean, he says in a, in a Bible way, but that's what he's saying. Now, here, here's, 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 the, here's, the, here's, the, here's the thing about That word depart means literally to set loose, to be cut free from. It was used in a nautical sense of a ship that was held in port by a rope and the rope being cut free from the shore so it could set sail. It was used of a, of an, a very heavy anchor weighing the ship down and cutting the anchor loose so it could set sail on its voyage. 
And Christ followers are willing to cut it loose so they can set sail because they know that the journey ahead of them, they will not be lost at sea. And in Hebrews 6.20, continuing with the same nautical idea of setting sail, it talks about Jesus as our forerunner. What that means is, back in the day, the forerunner of a ship as it's coming into port would jump out of the big ship in a little ship with a big rope. And the forerunner would go into the port and tie the rope around a winch and would then winch the ship into port safely to make sure, the forerunner would make sure that those coming after would arrive in port safely. And so the Bible says Jesus is our forerunner. As we cut loose and set sail to bring us in safely so there is no fear. In essence, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus looks at us and says, look, you're coming with me even if i got to drag you behind me. <laughs> We're going to get there. So the Christ follower can set sail with confidence and without fear because Jesus is our forerunner who has gone before us and brings us in safely. Jesus brings us into our eternal home. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I'm gonna, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. Do you know how big your mansion is going to be in heaven? Do you know how big? The Bible actually tells us. The Bible tells us exactly how big your mansion is going to be. And I'm not going to tell you today. You've got to come back later for that one a couple of weeks from now. But that mansion means literally dwelling places. How long does it take to build a house? How long? BJ, you redid your house. How long does it take to build a house? A while? <laughs> We're talking six days? I'm sorry, six months? Is that a good? We built them in Mexico in five days, and, but it's nothing I'd want to live in. But like, uh, uh, like uh, so let's just say six months. Jesus said, I go to prepare your mansion. How long has he been working on it? 2,000 years. Now just think a minute. If God made all this in six days, and he'd been working on your house for 2,000 years. How good is that going to be? Right? Point is, you got a home with your name on it. The mortgage has been paid, and nobody can do little squatter's rights and move in on you. It's a departure. It's a selling ship. We have to view life as a collapsing tent. Just a tent that's sagging, and some of our tents are sagging more than others, but it's not like just this collapsing tent, Second Corinthians five. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we'll have a building from God, an eternal home, house in heaven, not built by human hands. See, it makes a difference if we view life as a tent and weigh it against viewing life. As a building, one far outweighs the other. Do you understand? See, one is temporary, that's not intended to live in very long, and the other is permanent, eternal. I grew up backpacking with my daddy. Started backpacking with him when I was five years old. 
all the way through high school and college. Been backpacking with our kids, my wife, as a family. We've taken our our, our, our our son's friends along with us. It's been, it's been a lot of time backpacking. And one of the things I know, when we go on a long backpack trip, multiple days, multiple stops, multiple multiple journeys, that first night when you, when you get to the campsite, that very first night, and you put up the tent, you don't drive those tent stakes into the ground too firmly because you know you just got to pull up the tent the next morning. That's life. That's our body. We're careful not to drive our tent stakes into the ground too firmly because in the morning we just got to pick them up. The Bible says we're strangers and pilgrims in this current world. And Christ followers are less grounded here because we know that this tent is not permanent, and that's okay. So if we're going to pull up the tent stakes pretty soon, how do we do that? Let me wrap up this message with this. Real quick. How to die well. Do you want to know how to die well? You're like, I'd rather know how to live well. That seems a little bit more fun. How to die well. I look at Jesus, who did it perfectly. Let me just tell you, let me take the pressure off. We're not going to do it like Jesus did. We're not going to tame that. But he gives us a model. So let's just look at the model real quick. Can we do that real quick? Yes. Yeah? The way we die well is to die with the right attitude. Jesus knew that at the end of it, he would be at home with the Father. And he approached death with the right attitude. But it's interesting, the attitude Jesus had about death. It was, it, was, it was a mix of apprehension and sorrow and joy. He didn't pretend like it wasn't a big deal. It was a huge deal. Let's look at what the Bible says. And being in anguish, he was in the garden. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. But the Bible also says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And then the Bible tells us, so don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. See, what was happening in Jesus' life is he felt the weight of becoming legally guilty for humanity's sin. And he also felt the pain of the potential loneliness of possibly being separated from the Father. All the while knowing the the physically excruciating pain of a crucifixion while feeling the spiritual weight of guilt. And it was overwhelming. There was apprehension, there was sorrow, and there was joy. All mixed together with hope. See, here's, please understand this about death. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to grieve when you know you're going to die. And it's okay to grieve when you know someone else is going to die. It's okay to sorrow. The greatest sorrow associated with death is the realization that you're leaving loved ones behind. Or that you're being left behind. The Bible says we should sorrow. But not as those without hope. Sorrow is part of the predicament that we're in. Because death is our enemy. Now it's an enemy that will be destroyed one day, but it's still an enemy while we live. We understand that, don't we? 
Some of you have faced mortality, your own mortality. You've got the note and the call from the doctor. Some of you have faced the mortality of one you love. How do you face mortality with the right attitude? This is what I'm convinced of. I see it in the Bible and I've, I've witnessed it in life after life after life of Christ followers looking at death. God gives his people dying grace when they need it. There's something mystical about it. There's something spiritual about it that I don't understand. I just see it, read it. Every Christ follower in the Bible that died faced it with grace and a peace that was beyond themselves. And I've been with some of your loved ones who have died. And I've watched them face it with grace that was so far beyond. I've seen that in my own family. You might not have it now, but if you're a Christ follower, you'll have it when you need it. And for the Christ followers who's convinced to heaven, God provides grace for dying that is beyond themselves. And it is a beautiful testimony of his mercy and grace. So you face it with the right attitude. And you face it in the right way. It sounds really odd. But the way Jesus died was orchestrated by a father who loved him. Let that sink in. The way Jesus died, the most horrific, physically demanding death of crucifixion, was orchestrated by a father who loved him. He couldn't have been thrown off a cliff. Matter of fact, they tried multiple times to throw Jesus off a cliff. It never worked. Because that's not how God orchestrated his death. He couldn't have been stoned. That's how the Jews carried out capital punishment. He couldn't have been stoned. Because that's not the way God orchestrated his... You, you, know why? you know why Catholics are thankful that Jesus was crucified and not stoned to death? So that they can do this rather than this. <laughs> that's funny. I'm saying that's funny. I don't care who you are. I got Catholic friends and that's funny. God chose the way Jesus would. I mean, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 21 and Galatians 3, that curse is everyone who hangs on a tree, and Jesus had to become the curse for us. So it could be removed. He had to die by crucifixion. Did you know that God chose the way Peter would die? I mean, consider the implications. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said, even in spite of that, Pete, follow me anyway. It could be, a point could be, a, could be made that God has chosen 
how his kids make their transition. He knows what chariot he's sending for you to pick you up. Die with the right commitment. This is awesome. This is just freaking awesome. I mean, Luke 23, Jesus called out. I mean, he's on the cross. He got no energy left. And he cries out in a voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my... I don't think it was a whimper. I don't think it was a resignation. I think this was a command and a proclamation. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. What a way to go. The last ounce of energy, the last ounce of strength, I'm going to use it to make this proclamation that, Father, I trust you and I'm giving myself to you. I'm out. That one of the, my favorite verses in the Bible, y'all need to memorize this one, Acts 13, 36. This, David served God's purpose in his own time and then he died. That's a great verse. I mean, may that be said of every one of us. Serve God's purpose in your generation and then die. I, I, I told my this is the this is one of the verses I want on my gravestone. Carl served his God's purpose in his generation, and then he jumped this dirt clod. He got out. Why be allowed here any longer? I mean, I want to go sliding into heaven with whatever hair I had left with it on fire. Just serve God's purpose and be done. That's the right commitment. This next one is the most difficult one, though. Dying at the right time. This is the struggle that we have to think about when we talk about death. right time. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, but he knew his time. Three times earlier in the Gospels, we're told that people tried to take Jesus and kill him, but the Bible says his time had not come. This time it was his time. He's 33 years old. We would say that that's pretty young to die, wouldn't we? I mean, think about Jesus. He's, he's, he's a pretty good guy. Were there more messages and sermons he could have preached? Were there more miracles he could have done? Were there more people he could have healed? It was his time. This is the struggle. You take it out of Jesus' context and the context of church right now, and you put it in some of the other contexts that you have lived through and watched other people go through, it's a tough concept. Right? So I'm not going to deal with it today. This is another one of those question and answer night. But there is a semblance, there is an idea that there is a time. Let me just wrap up with this. However it is and whenever it comes. I was just reading a study this last week about this. And I haven't read the study about other countries yet, but I read it about America. 
So far, they say that the mortality rate in America is just at 100%. <laughs> However it comes and whenever it comes. God, I view death as a gift. That's how it's viewed in the Bible. Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ. And to die is a present. Paul said, to live is good, to die is better because death is a gift. Now, I, I, when I say death is a gift, I realize that it's a gift that we, we don't want to open too quickly. <laughs> but the truth is still that eventually we will. You know what the early Christians said as they were being persecuted to death, thrown to lions and other things? You know what they said? They said this. The pagans can take many things from us. The pagans can take our houses the pagans can take our land. The pagans can even take our children. But the one thing the pagans can't take from us is the gift of death. The gift of death. I was thinking about this week and I thought, how different are we than our Christian ancestors? Death is the entry into the eternal heavenly kingdom. And we can't get there any other way. We can fight it for a while, and we should, but at the end, we have to accept it. If any of you know the church history from the 16th century, in Europe, hundreds of Christians were killed by the Catholic Queen Mary I. That's where we get the nickname Bloody Mary. It was from her. Because she put to death hundreds of Protestant Christians who believed that baptism was only for adults as proof of salvation, not as an act of salvation, who wouldn't baptize children nor sprinkle. And because they would not change that way into Catholicism, she had them put to death. Can you imagine? The stain of blood is all throughout church history and Christian history. Why? Because they didn't fear death. Tradition tells us that while some were on the road to to execution, they had the government had to bring in people to play loud instruments to drown out their singing of songs of joy and expectation of dying. That's how joyful our ancestors were about the transition from this life to life with Christ. They viewed it as a gift. How different. The New Testament has a theology of suffering and it talks about two groups who suffer and they groan. It talks about one group who suffers and groans as those dying without hope. But the other group suffers and groans as a woman does in childbirth. Both are painful. Both processes are painful, but both processes are profoundly different. One, there's groaning in the pain of the dr hopeless dread of death. The other is the groaning of the pain of hopeful anticipation. The Christian views death and goes into and through that process. There is real pain, but it's pain as a woman getting ready to give birth with the expectation and anticipation of holding her baby. 
profoundly different. It's no coincidence to me that the first two chapters in the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, begin with the creation of the heavens and the earth. And the last two chapters in the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, begin with the recreation of the heavens and the earth. And in between those is our reality of fall and sin and corruption and decay and death. And that process is okay. Because we know that new life is just around the bend. New life is once we cut free from the dock. New life is the departure from this to that land. The promised departure of the promised land. Because we know that recreation is coming. So we view death differently. Not without sorrow, but sorrow with hope. Because we know what's coming very soon. And that, my friends, is a good thing. But I need to wrap up with this. Our eternal destiny is determined in this life. Not in that life. Your eternal destiny is determined right now in this life. What have you prepared yourself for? Only those who have placed their faith in Jesus can accept death the way we talk about it. If that isn't your sure hope and, 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 and foundation, this will forever be a struggle for you. Only those who put their faith in Jesus will be able to die well, like we talked about. Only those who put their faith in Jesus have heaven waiting for them in a place prepared. And so, if you haven't yet, do you want to? I want you to pray with me. Father, these things we talk about are not simple and they're not easy. And so many of us have lived with fear regarding it. So many of us have <clears throat> lived in ignorance of it. Unsure about the process. With the future completely unknown. And the evil one has ruled our emotions. Either fear over or grief in it. Father may not that not be the case anymore. Jesus, thank you that you went through the veil. Thank you that you have become our forerunner who will winch us in to a safe harbor, a promised land, an eternal home. 
that while we sorrow for an evening, joy definitely comes in the morning. That we can look with confidence on the mortality of this life and be drawn with hopeful expectation into the next. Thank you that you have not left that reality up to our behavior and how good we may or may not be. Thank you that you've secured that. Jesus, by your life, death, and resurrection, it's already been taken care of. Thank you that you've made the way easy by faith. I would invite you in this moment, if you've never come to this type of faith, come to the Father through the Son. In faith, I'm going to invite you in the quietness of your own heart. Just, It's real simple. Father, I'm sorry for my sin. I admit I'm a sinner. I broke your law. I'm sorry for that sin. Save me. It's as easy and profound as it is. I admit I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. Forgive me and save me. Friends, I don't want you to leave this moment without making that step. I'm sorry for my, I've been, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. Save me. I don't want you to live in fear of death anymore. Jesus died so we don't have to. I admit I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. Save me. The moment that happens, your eternity is transformed. No more fear. There's a good land waiting when we cut loose of this harbor. Father, I thank you for those in this place for whom you are our God. I thank you for those in that place, in this place who have prayed, confessed or asked you to lead there. I thank you for the faith that exists in this place, Jesus, because of what you've done on the cross. I thank you. And I thank you that you've given us the assurance of a forever home. That you've given us the promise of a new land. That you've helped us understand that this world is a collapsing tent and it is collapsing and there will be a departure. But that departure is a joyous occasion because of what's waiting for us behind the veil. God, would you cause us to crave the things of you and crave the place of you more than this life. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for what is our reality. In your name I pray, amen.